Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream number 120 something. 123. 123. Mm-hmm. Uh, 123, that's that's a lot. And you are? Oh, I am Dr. Brett Weinstein and watch this. You are Dr. Heather Hine. Indeed. Rhymes with flying. We are here today, your friendly neighborhood evolutionary biologists. Friendly neighborhood evolution. Maybe not your neighborhood, but somebody's. Yeah, and maybe not friendly to you if you're actively not making sense, but there you go. <laughs> All right. Yeah, but these people, they make yeah, sense, absolutely. so we're friendly to them. Um, yeah, so today we're going to talk a little bit about Elon's Twitter play mm. and uh, creeping hospitalization as predicted by the late great evolutionary theorist W.D. Hamilton. Uh, whether puberty blockers are actually temporary and therefore harmless, and related to that, why we are tolerating porn, and uh, and maybe other things if we get to it. Yeah, other things. Maybe maybe other things if we get to them. Um, but let us start with some uh, some logistics here. We we have some we have a lot of craziness in our schedule upcoming, and uh, we will and um, soon, hopefully, there will be a better way of communicating such things, so you can go and look and see what's coming up, but that's not, yep. that is not happening yet. Our next Dark Horse live stream is going to be not this Thursday, but the following Thursday on April 28th, sometime in the afternoon, probably around 4.30 p.m. Pacific. After that, we'll miss um, the following Saturday as well. We'll be back on Saturday, May 7th, and then away for a couple more weeks before coming back to you for nearly back-to-back episodes on Thursday, May 26th, and then May 28th. So it is Thursday, the 28th. April 28th. April 28th. Is the next time we'll be coming to you. Uh, We got some good stuff coming. in that time and however we will actually be live streaming to our patron our patrons um in the private q a before that so we'll be back uh on our private q a a week from tomorrow sunday sunday april 24th at 11 a.m pacific so and both of those are uh going to be off the hook that is on the schedule both of what uh those streams the private one and the uh the public thursday yeah, there were a lot in the public list. So all of those. Yes. Yes. Well, we'll so, be able but, but I was to trying to be. I was trying to say something. All there. right. Okay. So next Sunday, if you want to hear from us next weekend, please consider joining me at my Patreon, where we have the Dark Horse uh, private uh, live streams, and um, that too will be improved in coming months. But we're not going to say anything more about that just yet. Now, if you want to riff on something, go for it. No, no. I, I remember the uh, song by the band X. Your phone's off the hook, but you're not. No. It's one of the great song titles of all time, and it's lost because we don't put phones on hooks anymore. But, you know, mm-hmm. it is what it is, I guess. Yeah. Um, it's kind of harsh, isn't it? Your phone's off the hook, but you're not. Oh, it's <laughs> really to the point. X, X, X did that well. Yeah, they did. Yeah. They did. Yeah. yeah. Harsh. Harsh, but true. But fair. Yes. Or at least clear. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> harsh, but true. Um. All right, so we are, of course, streaming on YouTube and Odyssey. The chat is live on Odyssey. You can ask questions for the Q&A to follow this at www.darkhorsesubmissions.com. Because our schedule is so odd coming up, there may be some of those non-Saturday episodes where we're not doing Q&As, but we are today. Uh, and as always, we will start with a question from um, the people on our Discord server. Uh, you can get access to that community, uh, which is thriving and lively uh, by joining either of our Patreons. And also, Brett has a couple of wonderful conversations each month on his. So, um, 
this last week on Natural Selections, my Substack, I posted uh, I posted something that I alluded to last week on Dark Horse about coming of age and um, what it means in modern times and how Margaret Mead understood it, how many years later Michael Moffat, an anthropologist at Rutgers, understood it, uh, who was doing a uh, kind of a participant observation, um, acting as an undergraduate, even while he was actually in a tenured professor at Rutgers in a, in a professional, non, non-awful way. Uh, and um, I, I encourage you to go there. And then, um, so we're going to be hopefully um, not on the internet for a little while here, uh, but I have already posted to, to land um, in subscribers' inboxes this Tuesday. This is free if, if you want to join me at Natural Selections. Some of the questions that we alluded to, I think, last week as well, where um, not, yes, actually, this, the next Friday um, is Earth Day, and we, not related to Earth Day, but we did a workshop uh, in our evolution and ecology across latitudes, year-long program, which included a lot of domestic field work and also an 11-week study abroad through Ecuador. And we basically asked students a whole slew of questions, many of which are simple, once you know, or once you have derived the answers, and some of which are so complex that no one has the complete answers yet. But they are all questions about the earth, questions about the seasons and the sun and the moon and the biota and the hemispheres and the tides and all of this. And so I have, um, those will, those will for free subscribers, um, half of those will land in your inbox um, to, for natural selections on Tuesday. And then I posted um, a little bit less than half of them for paying subscribers for Wednesday. Yes, they're the kind of puzzles that make your brain last longer. Exactly. Right? They're the kind yes. of things, even if you know, like, why are the phases of the moon what they are, figuring out how to describe it right is yes. it will reveal things about what you don't know or things like uh you know if the moon is full when does it rise that kind of thing exactly and as i was reminded actually looking over those questions that we had given to our students early in this year-long program back in fall of 2015 um, that we specifically said you should aim to be able to have an understanding sufficient and a communication style sufficient such that a very smart and curious sixth grader should be able to understand you Yes. And um, that is that is an honorable goal. You know, when when people when you hear people talking um, about about complex things or about things that they tell you are complex and you can find no way in, sometimes it's because you don't speak the language yet and um, you should be able to do some back and forth in order to learn the language that they are using. And sometimes too often it's because uh, they either haven't bothered to or they actually have an interest in not actually speaking in a way that you are capable of understanding, that other people outside of their little tiny intellectual tribe are capable of understanding. Of course, this is a, this is a form of gatekeeping. This is, a, this is a form of making sure that the people with the credentials and the authorities can sort of stand over, lord over, tower over everyone else and thus make decisions on our behalf. And this is anti-democratic. It's anti-scientific, it's anti-humane, and uh, we, we, of course, at Dark Horse are exactly trying to do the opposite, and we did in our classrooms, and uh, we do in our book, Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century. It's dense sometimes, it's tough going sometimes, but we try to make it accessible because accessibility is not a sign that you're not doing important work. In fact, failure to be accessible can be a sign that you actually don't really understand what you're doing. Yeah, it's actually also, it's a great way to make enemies. Um, 
being accessible. Yes, making things perfectly clear, mm -hmm. right? There's a, a way in which... Most uh, people aren't seeking to make enemies, though. That's not really a selling point. Well, you know, it depends. You, you know, you, you, you make your own choices in these regards. But um, but yes, it does it does make enemies, whether you like it or not. And, you know, the intelligent six-year-old is, uh, is, is actually a higher bar than you would think. I mean, it's high. Sixth grader. Sixth grader. Six-year-old well, six is, is a little tough for actually, some of these. Actually, we did that with our kids sometimes. But well, of, I, I agree of course with you. we did, grader, but, we, I, but that's, not, that's yeah. not what we established here. But, these, uh, but a, kid, a kid is prone to hold you to uh, a high standard of clarity, and they will find things that you might elide you know, in your explanation, things you're a little vague on mm -hmm. um, that they, uh, they will force you to, uh, to describe. That's right. Um, now, we also... Uh, while we are not uh, live streaming the following Saturday, at some point in that general milieu, there actually will be a Dark Horse episode that that drops you with a guest. We won't say more about it now, but it should be uh, yes. should be excellent. It has a little extra complexity in the editing, so I don't want to promise a particular date. But there's uh, there's one coming. Keep your eye out. Um, and I actually wanted to give a shout out also, as you were mentioning Discord. Um, we were invited, we can't go, but we have been invited to a gathering. There are apparently gatherings that are happening. Our Discord people are arranging to meet in person, which is so cool. Mm. And uh, I ran into somebody at the supermarket and they uh, they invited us. So anyway, there's here Portland. In Portland. Yes, here in Portland, great. there's apparently quite a community. So, And we actually, we had dinner with a couple of... Um, of people who we did not previously know and I didn't ask in advance, so I'm not going to say anything more about them, but really extraordinary men. And we were, we're just, we're, we're very grateful um, to so many of you for, um, for your being here with us, for being grateful and for, um, in this case, um, allowing us to learn from you as well. Yep, absolutely. We should endeavor to stay on their good side, by the way. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So, uh, I guess uh, without further ado, we have, as usual, uh, three sponsors. We do not take uh, sponsorships from products that we cannot either personally vouch for or have a particular personal attachment to in some way. So uh, you can be sure when we are, when that green perimeter is around the screen or you hear that tone leading in and we are actually reading ads, um, we actually do um, speak on behalf of these sponsors. All right. All right. Our first sponsor this week is Relief Band, a product that can help with nausea. Under ancient, ancient circumstances, nausea was generally a useful signal that something is off. You had eaten something you shouldn't have or were near something emanating a bad smell, itself a signal that you should not get near it. In modernity, we still need to track our bodily sensitivities. We should not always choose to simply erase discomfort like nausea whenever we feel it. That said, some of modernity creates nausea that does no good at all. Travel sickness, for instance, can be agonizing and relief would be lovely. Enter Relief Band. Relief Band is an anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to relieve and prevent nausea associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, chemotherapy, and more. Relief Band is 100% drug-free and can be used for as long as you need it. Developed over 20 years ago, it is the only over-the-counter wearable device that has been used in hospitals and oncology clinics to treat nausea and vomiting. There are zero side effects. And now there's Relief Band Sport, which is waterproof, features interchangeable bands, and has extended battery life. We asked a friend to try it out. Here is her testimonial. I used to have nausea on a nearly daily basis for both, from both anxiety and the need to take regular medication. Relief Band relieves my nausea in less than three minutes without the side effects I was experiencing from anti-nausea medication. It has entirely changed my life for the better. 
So if you've got nausea from anxiety or car or seasickness or something else you cannot otherwise disable, consider Relief Band. Relief Band makes a great gift for any time of year. Right now, they've got an exclusive offer just for Dark Horse listeners. Go to reliefband.com and use the promo code DARKHORSE to receive 20% off plus free shipping and no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. That's reliefband, R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D.com and use promo code DARKHORSE for 20% off plus free shipping. Our second ad this week, our second sponsor this week is for Vivo Barefoot, uh, which regular listeners will be well familiar with. And increasingly when I speak about it to... uh, People I run into, they know about Vivos. They know about Vivo Barefoot. These are shoes made for feet. Most shoes are made for someone's idea of what feet should be and be constrained by, and usually that someone doesn't actually know feet or what they can do. Vivo Barefoot does know feet, and these shoes are a revelation. We love these shoes. They are beyond comfortable. The tactile feedback from the surfaces you're walking on is amazing, and they cause no pain at all because there are no pressure points forcing you, your feet, into odd positions. They're fantastic. Our feet are the products of millions of years of evolution hundreds of millions of years, billions of years, depending on how you count. Humans evolved to walk, move, and run barefoot. But modern shoes that are overly cushioned and strangely shaped have negatively impacted foot function and are contributing to a health crisis, one in which people move less than they might, in part because their shoes make their feet hurt. Vivo Barefoot shoes are designed wide to provide natural stability, thin to enable you to feel more, and flexible to help you build your natural strength from the ground up. Foot strength increases by 60% in a matter of months just by walking around in them. The number of people wearing Vivo Barefoots is growing. It's an odd little club, easily easily recognizable because the shoes are a little unusual looking. Um, But once people start wearing these shoes, they don't seem to stop. Go to vivobarefoot.com slash darkhorse to get an exclusive offer of 20% off. Additionally, all new customers get a 100-day free trial so you can see if you love them as much as we do. That's V-I-V-O-B-A-R-E-F-O-O-T dot com slash darkhorse. And our final sponsor uh, for today is Brightmove. Brightmove is modern recruiting software, otherwise known as an applicant tracking system or ATS. If you're working in a staffing company or an RPO company or an HR department, you know exactly what an ATS is. And if you're not using Brightmove, you are missing out on the opportunity to make more placements and hires. Now, this is a weird sponsor for us. It's a bit of an odd sponsor for us since we don't have any reason to use the product. So why are we here talking to you about it? We are proud to be sponsored by Brightmove because it was co-founded in 2004 by the current CEO, David Webb. Brett's experience with David was that during Unity 2020, he showed up to volunteer, took on a great deal of responsibility and initiative in planning and crafting the technical aspects of the Rank Choice voting platform, which was fantastic. He's all around a great guy, and we have heard from other people whom we know and respect that this product is terrific. So Brightmove's co-founder is mission aligned with Dark Horse, but what makes Brightmove the ATS vendor for you? New software features are released every three weeks. The Brightmove user base, who are recruiters and hiring executives, are the ones requesting new features. Tech support is 100% US-based and wins customer services awards every year. Recruiting analytics are unique. And drag and drop candidate cards through your hiring workflow with our Kanban-style dashboard. Their Kanban-style dashboard not ours. For RPO companies, there are additional features that no other recruiting software can give you. They offer a single login for your company in all customer instances, a global candidate pool to feed all downstream hiring pipelines, data segregation for compliance and security, per RPO customer security roles for your team, and metrics reporting across all customers. Brightmove includes IP security and two-factor authentication on all of its offerings to ensure peace of mind for business owners and legal teams. 
And if you use a service like Indeed or ZipRecruiter, Brightmove can supercharge your hiring by feeding all new jobs to your internet job boards and then managing the influx of applicants, helping you filter and sort down to the best list of people possible. You have to see for yourself why Brightmove is the best applicant tracking system, that's ATS, that you have never heard of until now. Visit brightmove.com slash darkhorse to schedule a software demonstration today. If you become a customer, you'll receive one month of free service, depending on your company size and software package. That is a savings of between $1,000 and $3,000. Visit brightmove.com slash darkhorse today. That's B-R-I-G-H-T-M-O-V-E. I'm going to do that again. B-R-I-G-H-T-M-O-V-E dot com slash darkhorse. Yeah, actually, it raises a pretty interesting question, which is how do you know what to trust? And... Mm case of something where you can't assess the product directly, but you do know that it's produced by somebody who is a stellar human being who has displayed high competence in a similar realm. Competence and integrity. Competent, uh, yeah, well, high quality human being that was uh, wrapped in there. Um, but yeah, anyway, it's, uh, you know, that's exactly the kind of uh, evidence that I would take as a strong indicator if I was looking for, for some kind of product I knew nothing about. Excellent. So anyway, thanks, David. All right. Uh, you wanted to talk about what you called Elon's Twitter play. Yeah, Elon's Twitter play. So um, there's been a lot going on in the land of Elon. And Elon is a very uh, interesting person, obviously. He has gotten where he has gotten through some very unusual personal characteristics. But in any case, in recent weeks, he has become obviously and publicly interested in the state of Twitter and potentially doing something about it. So he initially uh, took a substantial stake, became its largest uh, shareholder, was uh, apparently headed to the board, decided not to get on the board, which was interesting. There was a reason for that. Um, I'm not sure he has said this exactly, but there was a limit uh, to how much uh, Twitter ownership he could have and be on the board. And so he decided not to join the board and then announced a plan to effectively acquire Twitter by buying up stock, $43 billion worth or something like this. Um, in any case, uh, the reaction to this was um, an all-out freakout by many, many people, and uh, Twitter itself responded by announcing what's called a poison pill strategy. And the poison pill, so taken from the idea of uh, somebody who doesn't want to be captured, would rather die than be captured, who might take mm. a poison pill so that they can't be tortured and give up information. The poison pill is a business strategy. They started uh, in the 80s or several different flavors. But in this case, basically, it's a, um, a plan in which the acquisition of stock above some threshold will trigger Twitter to issue to stockholders, except the one in the triggering position, stock at a greatly discounted price, thereby Oof. driving up the cost to acquire it. And this is a very effective strategy to uh, prevent an acquisition. I will point out, I, I don't know if you will remember this, but our good friend, Mike Brown, former uh, CEO of the NASDAQ and CFO of uh, Microsoft, uh, is an accountant in, in Microsoft's early days. Yeah, in Microsoft's mm -hmm. early days. Um, he uh, is an accountant by training, mm -hmm. and he once told us a story of an accounting uh, ploy used to prevent acquisitions. It went by a very different name, which I remember to this day, um, which is a prickle ball. And the idea was a prickle ball was in a 
financial structure that would cause the swallowing corporation to gag and cough up the corporation that had been acquired. <laughs> Somewhat slimier, but otherwise intact. <laughs> yeah, otherwise intact, which actually reminds me a little bit of uh, your um, poison frogs that you studied, uh, which also on occasion would be swallowed by something that would then think better of it and cough them up and they would hop away. I saw this precisely once. A boa took in a poison frog and uh, chewed on it for a while and finally spit it back out and she went on to become a successful mother the frog did yeah which yeah. is an amazing amazing to have seen that even once yeah um extraordinary yeah especially if you can track the animal and know that in fact it goes on to reproduce thereby telling a rather complete evolutionary story luckily for me i had already tattooed this particular frog so i did not have to hassle it right then yes you heard her correctly <laughs> she tattooed the frog. Yes, yes. Yep. Um, these were not gorgeous tattoos. I'm, no, yeah. I never got, I mean, they're small. Frogs only have two layers of two layers of skin to R3, so you have to be really careful not to go that deep. And I didn't get to, like, mom with a heart or anything. They were alphanumeric codes, A1, B2, C3, etc. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, in any case, there's a lot we could... We could <laughs> I don't know how we got there. <laughs> Prickleball. Prickleball. Well, yeah. you know, this is why these people tune in, because yeah. there's often a yeah. hidden evolutionary connection and, well, mm-hmm. And tattooing frogs is the hidden evolutionary connection. Yes, to Mm -hmm. this um, uh, counter-hostile takeover strategy. Um, Anyway, there are aspects. So as I said before, I think there are multiple different kinds of poison pills. The poison pill that uh, Twitter deployed was this particular, I think it's the most standard poison pill that um, is typically utilized. Uh, I I don't don't know a ton about it, um, even though I'm, uh, you know that I'm actually quite the investor. The investor? Yeah, I'm, 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 a, I'm a very good invest, investor born into the wrong portfolio. That's pretty much what I've concluded. Is that right? Yes. So you've invested in? Well, not the right stuff, but the, I would natively invest in the right stuff is kind of the implication. I see. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I know what we're talking about. No. Um, yeah. I don't know. I was okay. just <laughs> off in a cul-de-sac. But the point is or the point that I wanted to make about this, Mm -hmm. is that the whole question about why Elon would acquire Twitter, why he would seek to acquire it, he made very clear as he ran his poll on Twitter about whether or not we users felt that speech rights were properly protected there. And in comments since, he's made it quite clear that his purpose isn't exactly about the uh, financial potential of this investment, that he is actually... Um, concerned about what is happening on Twitter that uh, affects what we do what in what is clearly our new public square, mm-hmm. um, which is a really interesting phenomenon. He, you know, the wealthiest person on earth at the moment is in a position actually to move pieces on the chessboard of planet earth that others simply couldn't. Um, I wanted to connect it, though, to a concept that we have talked about here on Dark Horse many times. The uh, tagline is zero is a special number. Mm. And what we have meant by zero is a special number is that there are lots of places where you, in order to engage in a certain strategy, need exactly zero alternatives to be present. So uh, the idea is if there was an American uh, university, for example, that had declared itself uh, uh, immune to wokeness and intent on simply continuing 
the practice of teaching people to think scientifically, logically, reasonably, teaching them about important facts of history rather than indoctrinating them into the belief that all white people are racist uh, or that the reason that men outcompete women athletically has to do with the patriarchy or something like this. If a university declared itself interested in teaching in the way universities used to attempt to teach, it would obviously be the place everybody who wanted their children educated would send them. And so the point is, that's the obvious strategy. Why, why aren't there any? And the answer is, there have to be none. If one university declared that strategy, and suddenly it was the new Harvard, because everybody who had the ability to choose where to go would go there, so they would not suffer the cost of paying for their own indoctrination, but would actually enhance their minds, then of course that strategy would spread, and university after university would pick up this strategy. So there have to be zero, because if there was one, it would win, right? It does raise the question of what kinds of... Uh mechanisms are involved to keep it at zero. And I'm thinking with, you know, within the university question, um, and we will come back to, to exactly this question in, uh, in our next couple of episodes, actually. Um, but there are some, you know, there are some new initiatives in higher ed that look promising. And uh, until, I don't know, three, five years ago, the University of Chicago seemed to be holding strong and saying, you know, we have the Chicago principles and we are not going to succumb to the to the crazy, basically, but they they stopped. Right. Uh, so you know what you know why did they? Given that it seems like just at a fiscal level, um, the existing in this case elite university that said not us, come to here if you don't want any of that, uh, would just be drawing so many students that they'd suddenly have resolved any you know lingering economic issues that they have. Right. Um, so we can't you know we can talk a little bit about all that we've seen that has pressured people into uh, embracing. Uh, idiotic policies at their university or, or wherever else. Um, but the basic point is there is so much at stake, right, for the woke revolution. And the woke revolution really is about certain people making a move, right? Mm -hmm. They want to change where they are, and they may be justified in wanting to change where they are in civilization's hierarchy, but they're doing it by illegitimate means. And the point is there's so much at stake for them in keeping the number of universities that you can send your kid to at zero but the point is you should expect them to spend an ungodly amount of effort or resources to intimidate anybody who attempts to um, evade this puzzle and create the first, you know, um, you know, to, to put down a flag that declares independence from, from the movement. So Indeed. the point is zero is a special number because zero has to be the number. If there was a, uh, a newspaper that was reporting reality, right, we'd all subscribe. Right? So there can't be a newspaper that reports reality. They all have to suffer because zero is a special number. The corollary here, though, the reason that uh, I think this is important in the, the current question about what Elon is up to and, and where we are, is that zero is a special number, and the implication of zero as a special number is that one is an equally special number. So this is a bid to, to get us a platform that works. Now, is it possible that Elon is not being straightforward and he has some other reason to want us to think that that's what he's doing, I guess. But he has been very clear and I don't see any real reason to doubt him. He's a guy who's made enough resource and has he's clearly having fun doing things that a person might 
choose to want to do, choose to want to be remembered for. And this sort of fits with that ethos. I so, think that's part of what angers people, frankly, <laughs> that he's having fun at it. Well, and I think it also scares them because one of the things that works in favor of those who wish to hold the number of functional entities to zero is that in general, people who get control of one of these things are subject to the same incentives as everybody else. And so it doesn't mean that anybody's lost control. But in the mm -hmm. case of somebody like Elon, who can throw, you know, a vast sum at the problem and still not compromise his ability to do what he wants in the world, mm -hmm. that's a frightening prospect, especially if what he wants to do is um, protect free speech rights. Because yep. think about all of the stuff, I mean, given the last two years have been a, a marvelous example of the importance of Twitter not being a free space, right? All of the things that we have false consensus on, right, become very different if suddenly, you know, you can uh, speak openly on Twitter and nothing bad happens to you. Yep. Uh, let me actually just point out that uh, we're not going to show the video, but uh, there's a video from Morning Joe this week, and you can show my screen briefly if you want here, uh, in which the hosts are talking about the bid, and they are not pleased. And, uh, again, I'm not going to play this through, but one of the quotes, the, the, the salient quote from in here is uh, the, the female host, whose name I've forgotten, says, Elon could actually control what people think. That's our job. <laughs> God. <laughs> Do they hear themselves? Well, probably not. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of arm waving, I'm sure, to explain, explain this away. But this is, this is precisely the problem, right? When you, when you reveal the man behind the curtain and you see that they're doing exactly the thing um, that they're claiming they're afraid that someone else is going to do. And it seems more likely, actually, that indeed that was a reveal of how many in the mainstream media view themselves. We are here to tell you what to think because you plebs are not smart enough to understand yourselves. Um, and if someone else comes along and says, I actually am interested in not letting you do that, it's as if the only possible reason they can imagine for someone to behave this way is with the same um, ill intentions that they have. Yeah, um, exactly. Uh, now, what we think we are looking at, I mean, let's put it this way, because we don't know what is he's actually up to, this could be uh, very negative, right? In sure. other words, there may be some, as bad as Twitter is, maybe it could be worse. On the other hand, it's hard to imagine how it could be, right? And when I say worse, I don't just mean uh, unpleasant and nasty and slanted and all of those things. I mean actually dangerous. And, you know, Elon has alluded to this, but think about the things that have been contentious on Twitter. I mean, for one, it occurs to me right now, Articles of Unity, mm -hmm. right? Articles of Unity was important, potentially, even if it didn't stand an important chance of succeeding in its objective. The point was, it was about, hey, we've got a fundamental problem. We've got two broken political parties, and they have frozen everyone out. We've got a duopoly that we need to deal with, and this is becoming more lethal by the decade. And grassroots works, and this was, Unity was very grassroots, uh, in large part by spreading via social networks until, you know, yesterday, effectively, um, through actual social networks, not not virtual social networks, um, such that 
people became aware that there were other people who were interested in solving a problem that maybe they had a little inkling of, but couldn't quite put their finger on, or they knew very well that there was a problem, but didn't think that anyone else saw it like them. So this is in part, you know, the, the, the tamping down of, of projects like Unity. Um, the, the importance of that, as you just said, is not necessarily in the, but, you know, but we could have won. Almost no one expected that there was a real chance in that first iteration of, you know, unity going to the White House. It would have been lovely, but that much of what it was doing was revealing to as many people as possible. We are out here. There are people who are thinking carefully and consciously and conscientiously and morally and compassionately and rigorously and logically about the same issues that all of you care about. And if you feel like you haven't seen anyone on the mainstream media about whom you can say that in forever, well, you're right, and here we are. And um, in the context of the last election, the ability to say that was all the more important because the critical thing, at the point that you have two parties who uh, nominate people as old as Joe Biden and Donald Trump, mm -hmm. um, the question is, well, why would a party not be able to nominate somebody who is simply less likely uh, to be mentally compromised by age? Are there no young people as competent as those two? That seems really unlikely. And in fact, if you look deeper, you look at highly competent people who couldn't get through the primaries because that is, after all, how the duopoly maintains control for their real constituents who are the, the corruptors of the system. Mm -hmm. And so the ability to simply have a place where you can speak the obvious where you can say, look, we have a corruption problem. This isn't new. Yes, you're being told you have no choice but to vote for Joe Biden because Donald Trump is that much of an existential threat to humanity. But you were also told that about Mitt Romney, and now you love him. So, you know, <laughs> the ability to say that is important. Mm -hmm. If Elon were to succeed in saving one platform, then effectively he saves social media because once there is one platform in which you can say real things, how do the other platforms continue their campaign of suppression, right? Because the fact is, if you can't say real things on Facebook and you can on Twitter, then people are going to flood to Twitter because in general, this is about people wanting to hear things and the way to prevent them from hearing them is to stamp them out uh, so they're just not sayable. Um, which, I don't know what order we were planning to go here, but I would point out that among the things that uh, Twitter blocked the discussion of was... Um, Hunter Biden's implication that uh, his father's influence was for sale, right? Specifically with reference to Ukraine, our ability to talk about the decrepitude of Joe Biden was also uh, not permitted on Twitter. And so the point is, well, you can say, you know, it was an election, there was chaos, but the point is these things are central to the issues of our current moment, right? We had a right to discuss it then because we are now suffering the consequences of not having discussed it. Right, but don't you think it's good for democracy that we aren't allowed to critique our dear leader? <laughs> well, I mean, I can't believe that we are placed in the position that we are in. And actually... Hold on. Yeah. Obviously, that was sarcasm. Yep. But... The, the flip argument is also made. Back when Trump was president, 
it was it was it seemed to be the case that many people thought it was bad for democracy if you didn't critique the mm. the then person in the executive branch, which no one was imagining. Well, you know, some, some people, so people on some people on the right maybe imagined Trump in the same sort of you know dear leader role. But the you know the dear leader reference there uh, with regard to Biden is you know this is this is not what democracies do. You know, we have the leaders that you cannot criticize uh, when <clears throat> when they make errors or when they appear to not be up to the job uh, is is indeed, and this harkens back to what we've been talking about in the last couple of weeks, um, that was, that's what happens under totalitarianism, not under democracy. Uh, exactly. Now, I want to go back to an error that I made during the election, which I have already acknowledged and pointed out, but it, I'm reminded of it mm. this week. Um, I said during the election that I didn't think Joe Biden would be sworn in. I thought that there that this was effectively a ploy that he was the person who was going to um, win the election and then there would be a shuffle. Now the reason that I thought that was that you know I sometimes say no matter how cynical you are you're still being naive. Um, I was being naive. I thought there was no way that whatever runs inside the Democratic Party, I thought there was no way that the DNC would put us in the precarious position in a world this dangerous, in the middle of a pandemic with as much at stake in the world and as many hot spots, that the Democratic Party would put us in a position of having a person who is clearly losing their mental competence at a rapid rate, have that person be in the role of the presidency, that's so mind-bogglingly dangerous that I couldn't imagine that they were going to let it happen. And so I thought they were going to do a swap with Kamala Harris. Now, I will say, and I can't believe that I'm going to say this out loud, given what we are seeing with Joe Biden, I actually think as terrible a president as I think Kamala Harris would be, I don't think we have any choice. I think the incompetence, and I, I don't I like... I don't know what you mean. We don't have any choice about what? Um, Zach, could you play the video of Joe Biden from this week? Yeah. So this, uh, this is one of many versions of this. I think this is the New York Post's version. Um, All right. What we are going to see is at the end of a speech. Here, oh, here we go. All right. Now, that was an obviously confused old man. I take, as I keep saying, so I take no pleasure. I, I think he, he's a corrupt politician. So some people I, couldn't see that. You want to describe what? He, he is a confused man at the end of a speech who turns around and has apparently forgotten what he's supposed to do, reaches out his hand to shake the hand of someone who isn't there. So he shakes the hand with the air, and then he kind of stumbles around and finally exits the stage yeah. Um, incoherently. And, you know, if this happened once, that'd be one thing. But we have so many instances of this sort of thing. And it was so evident during the election. Right. The point, it's sad and it's dangerous. 
it couldn't be more dangerous. Mm-hmm. It couldn't be more dangerous as So we what have, do you mean by we don't have a choice? I don't know what choice you're, you're talking an about. An incompetent president has to be replaced and the uh, chain of succession goes through Kamala Harris. Okay. And I, I don't want Kamala Harris as president. I think it's a terrifying prospect. And were she to become president, I think the other branches need to check her. She effectively needs to be um, uh, kept from exercising power and her purpose, therefore, would be to be a coherent person who can have somebody call them up in the middle of the night and say, we have a problem. We don't know if nuclear this, that, or the other. We need a person whose mind is still functioning to be able to answer a basic question about what we do on behalf of the American public. And Kamala Harris is in a better position to do that than Joe Biden. Yeah, if, she, if she's kept from acting as an ideologue. Right. And, you know, that's not unprecedented that you would have somebody step into the role and that they basically would be there as a, a, a caretaker rather than as somebody uh, put in, the, in place to, to enact imaginative policies or, or whatever. But we are just, we, it's hard to believe that in a pandemic with uh, a, a, a war by Vladimir Putin in Ukraine, that we could possibly tolerate a charade where the person in power is clearly not mentally capable of making difficult decisions, and therefore we don't really know who is in power, right? We have an unaccountable structure supposedly protecting our interests in an extremely dangerous moment of history. How could the Democratic Party do that to us? How, how, have, how have they not taken Joe aside? I mean, in his interest... In the countries, whose interest is it in to keep him in in that position at this moment? And so this is coming up here because you view, I believe, although you haven't said this here explicitly, uh, Elon Musk's bid, which could be cynical, which could be about something that we can't see, but it has the potential to be a patriotic act. Well, what I know is that during the election, when it was the right time to talk about this, when the answer is no, actually, we can't elect Joe Biden, because even if you would have wanted him in his younger, more competent uh, state, at this point, he is not qualified because he is not mentally there. That was evident during the election. And the point was, Twitter was not a place that you could openly discuss it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, having been on the wrong sides of those discussions, trying to point out, hey, we can't do this. It's unacceptable, right? This was taken as uh, support for Trump, right? Um, support for Trump in a place where that was considered <laughs> unacceptable. Yeah. You have a choice between A and B. I don't think so. I want a choice beyond A and B. I don't like A and ah, therefore you're for B. I, I was about to tell you that I like neither option. Nope. That's the choice. If you don't like A, then you must like B. We are forcing you into not just choosing B, but liking it. Right. And so I guess what I would say is that this has been an interesting week because we have um, the platform, uh, or one of them, that did so much work to prevent the free exchange of obviously important ideas, like is this person mentally competent enough to be elected to this uh, important office, Right. We have that question reopened by Elon Musk's move, but we also have vindication, even if I wasn't right that he wasn't going to take office, which obviously I wasn't right. But I was right that his level of um, uh, enfeeblement was significant enough that that was an obvious question. Right. It has now become all the more obvious. And so we have to be able to discuss the obvious in everything that is like the public square. We therefore need to go from zero platforms which tolerate it 
to one. And I think what Elon is gambling on is that if we go to one, it will go to many. Mm -hmm. Right. Once you have rescued one platform, people aren't going to stay where they're infantilized on Facebook or Instagram or wherever. They're going to go to the place where they can have adult conversations about important things. And, you know, uh, I'm, I appreciate whether he succeeds or fails. I appreciate that Elon is trying to do that with Twitter. And I really want to see it succeed. Even if it's a disaster, it is essentially certain to be better than it is. It's hard to imagine how he could make the situation more dangerous. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> well, that actually, I think, um, this idea that uh, the duopoly in the at least the American political system, um, which in, which which enforces winner takes all and has seemed to trickle down, if you will, into uh, an enforcement at the individual level of if you're not A, then you are B, and not only are you B, but you're going to like it. Um, this is a social construct. This is inherently a social construct. There is absolutely no reason uh, for there to be two and only two options in any political sphere. And you know, every everyone above the age of five knows that, right? There are not just two options. And so there is this simultaneous, I will say, and here's the segue, um, move to force social things, which not only have fuzzy borders, but tend to have lots and lots of instantiations and far more than two categorical states into a binary, and thus make force people into sort of blustering and getting flustered as they say, no, 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 this is just because I don't like Biden doesn't mean I like Trump, that sort of thing, right? And simultaneously, there is the opposite thing going on, uh, where there are some things in the universe that are binary. And um, we've walked through it lots of places in our book, many, many places, um, but sex is one of them in animals and in plants. And in, and in other lineages on this planet as well for reasons of anisogamy, of intermediate sizes and shapes of gametes not being stable. We have males and females, okay? And this binary is being up overturned as if it is the social construct at the same moment that we are seeing the binary imposed on a political sphere where it has no place. So there's, there's something very bizarre and so backwards in both directions there. Like, can you just flip your, your assumptions, you know, reduce your assumptions as low as possible. But in this case, the, the entire foundation that you're building both your um, sort of political understanding of the world and your understanding of the sexual world and therefore relationships and everything else is backwards completely backwards. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's almost the same phenomenon that we saw uh, with pandemic policy, where it's like at some point you realize this isn't just nonsense. It's upside down. Right. It's, it's everything down. you shouldn't be doing. And so I guess what I, I like your point here quite a bit. If it's binary, we're going to pretend it's a continuum. And if it's a continuum, we're going to insist that we describe it in a binary term. Yeah. And, you know, I was also reminded, I've been watching Andrew Yang uh, do what he's doing. And I was reminded, you know, we had people who I am certain are competent, are young enough that they are not going to lose their marbles in office, <laughs> mm -hmm. who like America, mm -hmm. right? That simple those three things. I mean, you know, during Unity, we we laid out three characteristics, but this is even simpler. What what, what were the three again? Say the again. three the, the three characteristics just now. Just now yeah. are uh, competent, yeah, 
um, young enough, young enough that they're not going to lose their marbles, mm -hmm. and uh, they like America. Yeah, pa patriots enough. Right. So yeah. my feeling is, yeah. if you approach Andrew Yang, right, and you say, Andrew, I got an idea for mm -hmm. how we could make stuff better. You know, here's what I know. A, he'd like to make stuff better. Mm -hmm. B, he's going to ask good questions mm -hmm. like, well, here are some downsides that might accompany such a plan. Are they worth it? Right. Yeah. So, how I just don't understand. A universe in which you had somebody in that office, forget political spectrum, party, ideology. I don't care. Just anybody who can think and likes America and is trying to do the right thing by it would be preferable to somebody who's losing their mind, is uh, corrupt, and you know has higher and, priorities. And ideological. Um, you know, beholden to a belief system that is not... We are all Americans. I am the president of you, the other Americans, and you know we we have we have audience all over the world. Um, so I'm I'm not pretending that everyone listening here is an American. But if you are uh, the president of the United States, you need to have a kind of patriotism. You should not be a nationalist, and this is a distinction that you have made very very yep. often, very clearly. Um, but you need to have an appreciation of the country that you hope to lead, um, because uh, if if that isn't true. There are a whole lot of us, um, I, I hope still a majority, who think that there is uh, so much worth saving here that if really what you're trying to do is overturn, you don't have any place in the executive branch. And I'm not saying that that's what you know Biden is or Harris or any of the rest, but the ideology underlying so much of recent policy on the left um, does look like that. And when you look at the, you know, when you, when you go in deep on some of the sort of founding principles, not of the Democratic Party, but of places of organizations like Black Lives Matter, you find precisely that. Well, I think what we also find is and I, I don't like using these terms. I don't want it to be inflammatory, but I, I think the point has to be made very clear. If you leave a guy as compromised as Joe Biden obviously is in that office during a moment like this in history, you are telling us that you don't love your country, that right. you are about something else and that this is a means to an end for you. There's something Machiavellian about a party, about the DNC, about whatever it is. I mean, we literally don't know who to call in an emergency, right? Somebody might know, but we don't know. We, the public, do not know who is acting as our president because our president obviously isn't. He couldn't, right? And if he is, that's even more terrifying. I guess I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt, and I'm imagining there are other people making decisions, and they're just telling Joe where to stand and what to say. But it's got to end. It's got to end. Somehow, somebody who loves America and is capable of responding logically has to be in that office, even just for emergencies. So the segue is to the actually binary system. Oh, yes. Of, um, of sex, which if, you, if you're done. Yep. Okay. Um, and we have here this week, not working Nope, nope, nope. Please, Zach, please take it off. Thank you. <laughs> um, please don't put on my screen until I say so. Um, all right. So we have now. You can now you can show my screen. Um, we have from Fourth Wave Now, which is a reference to we need a fourth wave of feminism because the third wave is destroying us. The Twitter account Fourth Wave Now, which is terrific, uh, has 
tweeted a video, which we will show you a little bit of, called Puberty and Transgender Youth from a uh, an organization called Amaze.org, which sells itself Hi. as a sex education for for young people, although when you look deep into their site, you find them interested in um, speaking to people younger than young adults. As Fourth Wave now says about this video, uh, this is one of the vids that a New Jersey school district is considering for fifth grade sex ed. A, um, and then we don't, I won't read the description here. Uh, if I may have my screen back, Zach, and I'm gonna ask you to show the video in just a minute. Um, boy, what has happened? Here we go. The YouTube video in question has a, actually, if you could put it up, Zach, I'm gonna, I just wanna read the description before. Um, yes, please, if you, if you could put it up but not play it yet so that I can show the description on the video. Okay. Um, so I'm gonna read the description on the video, which you guys can't see yet. Um, oh, there it is. Uh, everyone has a gender identity, a feeling or a sense of being male, female, or somewhere in between. Sometimes people's gender identity matches their bodies, and sometimes it does not. Someone may be born with a penis and identify as a girl, or born with a vagina and identify as a boy. This person may have a gender identity that is called transgender. What's important to remember is that people deserve to express themselves in ways that feels right for them and to be respected no matter how they identify, look, or dress. So we haven't even watched the video yet, and we're not going to watch the whole thing, even though it's short. But um, they begin with a premise, and so many, so many of the arguments over in trans activism land and uh, in let's teach little children sex ed land now are just making claims that aren't true. And they say them as if they're the most obvious thing in the world, and then they connect them to things that are true. And it becomes hard for people who are embattled or in any way just tired of it and don't want it to be their main thing to separate these things out. So this begins with everyone has a gender identity. Really? Like, that's a new concept. That's a social concept. Gender, as we have talked about uh, in the past, we understand it to be the human equivalent of what in non-human animals is called sex role which is variously the software to the hardware of sex or in animals, the behavioral representation, the behavioral manifestation of the sex that you are. Gender identity is, frankly, if it exists at all, uh, is certainly not intrinsic and fundamental and basic. It is regressive and, um, you know, usually it's going to be, frankly, misogynistic if it's, uh, if it's going against any particular sex at all, in that it basically says, if you are interested as a child in things uh, that traditionally have tended to be the, the wheelhouse, the bailiwick of the other sex, well, then your gender identity is the other sex. So if you're a mathy little girl, your gender identity is male. Well, this is sexist and regressive and backwards and horrifying. All right. Um, two, two critiques of it. One, the problem is it doesn't, it basically is um, promoting a wish, which may be transient, to a state of being, yes. right? In other words, 
you might want to be the other sex, but it doesn't mean that you are the other sex, identify as the other sex. It could be a legitimate want, or it could be a passing phase, but it doesn't really make any sense to promote it. You know, as you point out, it's the it's the, the either the behavioral manifestation or the software of sex. And so the point is... Well, gender is, but gender identity is like a step further in terms of crazy. It means yeah. if, it, if you wish it, then it is, mm-hmm. right? And that doesn't... As if it's something internal, which... Right. It doesn't... It does not um, add up that you would promote it. And the other thing is the need to have this conversation, right? The, you may wish that you were the other sex and not be, and then essentially you are has never been less because the freedom to be whatever you want to be, to do in the world what you want to do, to fall in love with who you want to fall in love with, that freedom is essentially total, at least in the West, right? You- or at least it was becoming so. And I, I, I feel certain that this begins to undermine and reverse many of those games. So before you keep going, let's just show a little yep. bit of this video. Um, Zach, I think I told you how much of this video to show, okay? Hi, fish. Come here. Oh, you need a name. Let's see. Wait a second. What gender are you? A person who is transgender is someone whose internal sense of their gender, being a boy, girl, or something else, doesn't match their physical body. People who feel this way sometimes feel anxious when they begin to reach puberty and their body starts to change in ways that don't match their internal sense of their gender. These feelings are totally normal. If you feel you want more time to explore how you feel about your gender before your body starts to change, it's important to talk with a parent, counselor, therapist, or doctor about the feelings you have regarding your gender. After some discussion and counseling, you may be referred to an endocrinologist. Endocrinologists specialize in hormones, and they are the most likely to prescribe puberty blockers for someone who wants them. Puberty blockers are medications that will stop your body from changing. They are usually given as an injection or an implant. They block the production of hormones to stop or delay the physical changes of puberty. The effects of the medication are only temporary, so if a person stops using puberty blockers, the physical changes of puberty will begin again. Whether you... So, the effects of the medication are only temporary. So if a person stops using puberty blockers, the physical changes of puberty will begin again. (laughs) This is a claim with no connection to reality. And put that together with the claim that was made on the banner but not spoken in the video. So for those just listening, uh, there was a banner across the top near the end of what we just showed you that said, unfortunately, not all health insurance covers the cost of puberty blockers. We are experimenting with children. Those children experimented on will never be the same. Some of them will be okay. Many of them will not. And they will have every right to come asking of the adults, of all of us, what it is that we were doing, what it is, how it is that we allowed giant numbers of children to be halted in their development, pretending that you can do that with complex physiological, anatomical, yes, endocrinological systems, and that it will all be fine 
that you can just say stop for a while, and then if I decide I'm fine, I'll go back to it. And you do that furthermore to a child who is already feeling anxious and confused and maybe hopeless and maybe a lot of other things. But no child who's feeling awesome about things and is going through a developmental period in which things are going smoothly decides actually I'm the other thing. So these are, these are children who maybe for completely normal reasons and maybe because they are undergoing other trauma or they have other mental health issues have decided that they have found the solution. Or maybe even worse, that they don't even know what the solution is, but what is being sold to them is if you aren't sure here's what we're gonna do for you. Having done that to them, they are guaranteed not to be able to walk back into a normal development or a normal life ever again. Yes, it is a case in which we are falling down on our most fundamental responsibility to children, Mm -hmm. right? We are supposed to give signposts and beacons that lead children into the state of being that is most likely to be one in which they can be effective and feel fulfilled and rewarded and find companionship. And instead, we are telling them things that we know aren't true, right? There is no reason that it should be true that you can start a puberty blocker and if you change your mind, stop the puberty blocker and just pick up where you left off. Um, yeah, that was quite something. Yeah. So for those watching and listening, our, our lights just flickered. Hopefully we can Hopefully finish the we podcast. Can carry on. That was yeah. quite the uh, lightning strike, I yeah. assume. But anyway, the point is you're talking about a radical intervention into a complex system in which we already know that it's not a stop it will, start it will system. We have the evidence of that. How bad it is, we couldn't possibly have the evidence. We'll find out when hundreds of thousands of people have had their puberty stopped and restarted and we see what the full effects are over the course of a lifetime. Mm -hmm. But it is radically misinformative. And then we are also, just even the way that video starts, Mm. right? Everybody has a gender identity and sometimes people's gender identity doesn't match their sex. And the answer is, look, kids, part of what being a child is is getting enough experience and where you can't get enough experience, getting enough information from people who have seen a larger part of the world about how common things are, right? So imagine a child lying in bed, looking at a shadow in their room and imagining it might be some terrifying thing, right? And the adult's job is to come in and say, nope, there aren't any terrifying things here. In fact, in my whole life, I've seen seven things that are terrifying and they were, you know, they were grizzly bears in Glacier (laughs) National Park or whatever. They were never in your bedroom. Right. They were never in your bedroom. The thing is that those things don't exist. And so when you tell a child, um, those things aren't here, they're not under your bed, they're not on the wall, they're not in the closet, they're not in the neighborhood walking the streets, right? They're not. They don't necessarily get it right away. But the point is their experience begins to match what you've told them And they will, over time, become an adult who knows that those things aren't there, right? Whereas if you tell them, oh, yes, um, having a gender identity that is out of phase with your morphology is something that happens to lots of people, right? You are giving them the exact opposite of information so that to the extent that they have a stray thought that doesn't feel like it fits somewhere, they don't gravitate to, aha, this is that thing I saw in that video, Mm -hmm. right? If I'm a girl who wants to have short hair, I I must be a boy inside. Right. This is, I mean, 
at the moment, I, I've been I've been flabbergasted and angry at many aspects of this for a for a long time now. But the at the moment, it's the explicitly anti-woman, anti-female, sexist, misogynistic, regressive part of it that is just that is just amazing because it is coming from the people who brought us the Me Too movement, who brought us, um, who are supposedly the standard bearers of feminism, but it is this third wave feminism, which is regressive, which I have for many years called, uh, you know, faux feminism, and which for which we have fourth wave feminism, you know, fourth wave now accounts and, and others um, suggesting, boy, do we need a fix? Boy, do we need to get back to thinking about, you know, why, how it is, for instance, that straight couples can live together in, you know, in love and harmony and not try to make each other into the other thing. Right. Right. Because men are not women and women are not men. And on average, men do tend to, for instance, uh, be better at just style of things. And females, men, no, women <laughs> tend to be better at um, detail styles of things. And there are some amazing, brilliant women at just and amazing, brilliant men at, at details. But pretending that if we're going to live together as equals, in which we both respect one another, we have to be the same thing is backwards. And imagining that what you can do is say, oh, well, I'm actually good at some of those things that have traditionally been and maybe more likely to be in the domain of men. Maybe I'm a man. No, no, I'm not. And neither is any other woman who has ever been good at math or sports or, you know, anything of science, like all of these things that are so powerful. And what crazy world would say, if you're interested in those things, you're actually a dude. I can't believe we're having this conversation in the 21st century. It's, it's unbelievable. It's crazy. And the fact is, you know, the facts, they're plenty good enough. Yeah. You know what? There are trans people. They are very, very rare. The chances that you are one are very low. The fact is, some trans people may not have come out because there was a lot of pressure not to do so. Back, that has, in, back in the day. Back in the day. Mm -hmm. That has become much less significant. Um, if you think you might be trans, you ought to wait a whole bunch of time and figure out if it clears up because it does for most people. And that's certainly mm -hmm. the simplest way to go about it rather than doing some radical medical experiment on yourself that will probably leave you infertile and disrupt who knows what other processes uh, at the same time, right? There's nothing wrong with the facts here. The facts right. are conveyable. In the rare case where those facts are salient, they can be conveyed. We don't need to pretend, right? right. It just it's preposterous. Um, are we where we go, we're going on this? Because something. Uh, well, you wanted to also talk a little bit about um, pornography. Before we do that, mm -hmm. before we do that, I want to do one other thing that just. Yeah, wow. Mm -hmm. More lightning. That's not so common here. And that's, it was just thunder we're hearing. Well, we're hearing the thunder. <laughs> yes. But I'm thinking it's the same phenomenon. What did you say, Producer Zach? It is. It is. Um, Producer Zach is 18 now. Yes. He had a birthday this week. Our our firstborn is now a, a an adult by in the eyes of the law. Yes, we can literally not tell them what to do anymore. We have to ask nicely and, you know, let the chips fall where they may. Um, 
that All doesn't right. that's not a match for anything in our family no no none of it is but no. um so i wanted to i had this uh, incident on uh twitter i think it may even have been yesterday um there was a hashtag uh game effectively people start these things they start a hashtag and um people respond to it and it trends and anyway you see what the is there is there a game to it you said kind of yeah the idea is so this one uh, was stupid thing women stupid things women do which is not the kind of hashtag i would usually respond to but in this case um an amazingly good evolutionary joke occurred to me it was perfect in almost every regard but one right very very deep um and educational and the one way in which it wasn't such a great joke is that i knew nobody was going to get it but I... <laughs> that doesn't always stop you <laughs> no no and in this case it didn't i i, I, I look, what did you do well here's the thing should i go look yeah you got you have it zach can't read it uh so the hashtag is stupid things women do and my response is <laughs> meiosis <laughs> Um, which you now you know so here's the thing all right making a joke that nobody's going to get isn't the best thing but not making that joke and living the rest of my life knowing that i failed to make it how was i going to do that see that's 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 a that's a frankly a male brain condition right there how will i live not having made the joke that no one was going to get well anyway just fine it's not gonna i i'm pretty sure it's not gonna get funny for my explaining it but i do think so that people will get the next such joke when somebody else has such a great opportunity i think i should because it was interesting what unfolded right uh i don't know i don't know what several people corrected me and they were like uh brett men also do my sure right of course Uh, of course of course course that happened right so anyway, God, does he not know? Does he, oh my God! Um, no. So I here's the, but I, I think you'll see why this is relevant to this conversation. I, I mean, you I, already kind of do. Yeah. But um, here's why the joke is hilariously funny. If you're and, and therefore what it means, right? Yeah. Um, so meiosis is the process by which a diploid individual, that is a person who has uh, two versions of every chromosome, produces a sex cell that has only one chromosome of each type and then two sex cells from two different people get together and they restore that diploid state and then the zygote turns or into two a... different zebras zebra well you you weren't just talking about humans right you no said, yes. oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely this does apply to zebras i should have said that thank you all right sorry <laughs> but okay here's so that's the what meiosis is right so yeah. Somebody responded to me, um, but which, men which obviously males and females equally engage in. Right, yes. right. Somebody responded to me. Uh, men also do meiosis, and I responded to them. <laughs> yes, but what choice do they have? Right, which is really the key to the joke because women do have a choice. Now they well, don't individually have yeah. a choice, but here's the amazing, strange, counterintuitive, weird evolutionary underpinnings of the whole crazy state of affairs is that females could clone themselves instead of going through meiosis, and they could produce an exact copy of themselves. And although that seems weird to us, in fact, it has a huge evolutionary benefit to it, which is that if you produce a clone of yourself, instead of dividing your genome in half and only passing half of it on to each offspring, it is evolutionarily twice as fit. So... There's a question about why, given that females 
can double, effectively double their fitness by cloning themselves rather than engaging in sexual reproduction. As these fancy lizards have done. Yeah, Zach, do you want to put up those fancy lizards? Mm-hmm. My uh, screen. Yeah, so these are whiptail lizards. This is Nemodophorus uniparens is the species. It's all female. Uh, they actually continue to have to engage in pseudocopulatory behavior in order to get their eggs to drop, basically. There's some complicated endocrinological uh, explanation. Um, but they are they are an asexual species, which descends from a bisexual species, which has males. Um, but all you know, females lay eggs that are 100% related to them. Now, they do engage... They actually do engage in meiosis, and so um, yeah. it's, it's complicated. Um, but they also occasionally um, get uh, input from stray males, uh, and that sort of keeps things interesting. Yeah. So anyway, at some point we will go into the details of that story and how it is the exception that proves the rule. But the basic point is there is a mystery, a big evolutionary mystery. It's not a little one. It's a giant one. Why females who have the capacity, probably more easily than they do, to produce a sex cell and join it with some half-genome from somebody else and hope that this brand new combination never seen on Earth before of genes is going to function well, that's a big gamble. And their immune system isn't going to respond badly to it. Right. Mm -hmm. That's a big gamble. Whereas uh, I've made it to reproductive age, my genome obviously works, why don't I just copy it? 100%, right? That's liable to be a much better bet. So why do females in uh, no animal species uh, do this without some, and we have to go back to the whiptails, the occasional uh, copulation with males. But the point is why, given how much evolutionary benefit comes from dispensing with males entirely and simply cloning yourself, why is this not constantly being attempted by females in every animal species, right? So. And just... uh just to go back to you know the distinction between the sexes being the gametes that they produce, uh, females producing large gametes that are full of the cytoplasm that is going to be needed to make a new life, and um, and also fairly sessile, fairly fairly immobile, and males producing small gametes that have been stripped of almost everything, but basically half a genome and a motor, and um, therefore being small and zippy, and they do the job of finding, and females do the job of bringing all the stuff that's necessary except for that half of the genome that the males bring. Um, we are defined um, as... Uh, we, we have long since defined that sex which brings the large immobile gametes as the females and that sex which brings the small zippy gametes as the males. And therefore, there are no all male species because male gametes can't produce, um, can't, can't develop into young because they don't have the cytoplasm in the cell, in the sperm or the pollen required. All right. So now the punchline of this whole discussion Good. is that males and females aren't remotely alike, right? It's not this whole uh, contagious idea that we are the same and it's arbitrary and all of this is nonsense. In many ways, we are opposites. And the, the point is females doing meiosis and therefore condemning themselves to the phenomena, to having to interact with males in order to produce offspring, which puts them in one of two conundrums, right? Females can either attempt to compel males to participate in raising the offspring so that they uh, are not costing themselves by raising half a genome that isn't related to them, right? Or they can accept the cost of raising a half a genome that isn't theirs 
which is a giant cost in evolutionary terms. That's the female predicament. So when this person responded, yeah, but males engage in meiosis too. It's like, yeah, of course males engage in meiosis, but it's not a stupid thing they do, right? It's a screaming great deal because they can't reproduce otherwise, right? Mm -hmm. The point is females have a choice, which they don't take, which is interesting, right? That's why the joke was hilariously funny I, to I, me. I, I think it's good, actually. Yeah, it's a pretty good joke yeah. um, for the, I don't know, a few hundred people who... <laughs> get it but anyway uh, i thought it, i thought it was it's instructive seeing that even even something like this where people who obviously know the term meiosis don't necessarily spot the asymmetry between male meiosis and female meiosis sure. in terms of whether it's uh, you know an obviously Ob great idea or a paradox right or um you know inherently obligate or um at some level not for mammals at this point right but but facultative, at least if you go far back enough. Well, another way to put it is it, it is a choice, but it is a choice that is always a loser if you make what seems like the better choice and therefore selection has stopped experimenting with it, right? The point is... Uh, and Asexual species uh, don't persist. And actually, this um, we will end up just saying a little bit about W.D. Hamilton at the end here. Perfect. And um, one of... you know He was, you know... One one of the greatest uh, evolutionary theorists. Uh, he died young, too young, at like sixty three in um, in two thousand. And uh, one some of his great contributions to evolutionary theory involved the evolution of sex, mm -hmm. and um, specifically he and it was Marlene Zuck, right, uh, who proposed the idea that this was about evasion of parasite loads. Yep, the Hamilton Zuck hypothesis. All right. I said one, yes. one thing yes, before yes. we move on from uh, my hilariously funny to a tiny number of people joke. Yeah. Um, which, uh, da, 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 what was it? I now lost it. Uh, oh, yes. Another person commented, and I feel because they were not wrong, that I do not want to dismiss their observation. Somebody commented that women do not do meiosis, that uh, meiosis is done, the eggs are produced before uh, females are born, which technically is largely true, not 100% true. The jury's still out on this one, actually. Uh, you know what? I got to stop saying that about science because um, yeah. it, you know, it, it mixes the scientific and the legal as if that's fine. And I've taken issue before, what was like a headline said that some scientific result was effectively like a legal standing. So it's not, it's not the jury is still out. It's that... Um, reasonable scientists disagree about what the evidence means uh, from, it might even be Drosophila, like some other species, which seem to have the ability to uh, continue to produce eggs into adulthood. And uh, it's not clear exactly what is true for humans. All right. Yeah. So the jury has returned on the question of whether it is all right to say the jury is still out within science and the jury has decided it is not acceptable to say the jury is still out mm -hmm. within science. That's certainly true. And the jury has now exploded in a puff of smoke from, <laughs> from um, being too <laughs> reticulative being or yes, something. Exactly. Um, but none, nonetheless, the point about when uh, meiosis is done in females is a fair question. Um, but I will just say that it is, in some sense, the ancestral femaleness that has decided to continue engaging in meiosis despite the annoyance of having to deal with men. And um, that. so the joke still stands, even if there is that technical caveat. I rather enjoy it. And I rest my case. Continuing to enjoy, uh, continuing to engage with men.
Yes, and I'm very pleased at this, paradoxical as I find it. Mm-hmm. All right. Did you, before we finish up talking a little bit, just a little bit about W.D. Hamilton, want to say anything about porn, or do you want to save that? We can save that one. Okay. Um, <clears throat> on the hazards of. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, okay, which we which we also give a, just a couple-page section to in our book. So, you know, the, the position that we understand porn to be um, bad for people is not is not one that we are producing today, but one that you will say a little bit more about in a future episode. Okay. Uh, W.D. Hamilton uh, was, as I've said, one of the great evolutionary theorists. He had many, many contributions. He died at 63 after having gone to Africa in search of a the closest living relative of HIV, and he was he was he was looking at chimps and collecting chimp poop, uh, and he contracted malaria, and uh, after many weeks in the hospital back in the UK, when, after he'd come home, he died, uh, and at that point, his collected papers were being or his his scientific papers were being collected in volumes. So narrow roads through Geneland, uh, in uh, Geneland uh, uh, of right. I've forgotten it. I was looking at it. I was looking at these. I'm embarrassed that I don't. I was looking at them so often um, this week, and I've now forgotten which what the um, I think it's what the letter is there. Um, I mean, what the word is there. Uh, but they were being collected, so you can look it up and tell me once you find it. Yeah. Um, the first volume was already out. I think those are the papers through 1980, and the second volume through maybe 91 something, or maybe getting the dates wrong, uh, was in the editing mode at the point that he went to Africa, and so for each of these, uh, for each of these published scientific papers, he was writing a preamble introductory essay, and sometimes the preamble introductory essay was far longer than the paper that it was then uh, introducing. And then there was a third volume that came out, um, you know, obviously without any of his input at all, that that completed the set. So is it narrow roads of? of Narrow Roads of Gene Land, Volumes 1, 2, and 3. And in the second volume, which focuses on the evolution of sex, he writes an essay introducing a paper on um, evolution of sex called The Hospitals Are Coming. Uh, now, I was not able uh, to get my hands on the book yet. It's it's still on its way to us. Um, but I actually came to know, to, to be reminded of this, by this, you can show my screen for a moment here, Zach. Um, this Psychology Today blog, Christopher Badcock, PhD, uh, writes something called The Imprinted Brain. And I actually, I came to find him. I'm just going to walk you through a little bit here uh, because he had written a piece that I found a little bit, um, actually a lot dismissive of Margaret Mead, but it was his understanding of um, what her informants had had done, his reporting of someone else's findings of what her informants had done uh, that really helped clarify for me what some of the arguments in the anthropological literature were, something I talked about last week. So I went looking at some of his other stuff, and it's actually often quite good. And so he has this piece published March 20th, 2021, so we're a year into COVID at this point, called Global Medicalization Has Come with Selfish Herd immunity. And you can give me my screen back here now, Zach, but I am going to read a um, two paragraphs, I guess, from W.D. Hamilton's essay, The Hospitals Are Coming, uh, which was published as an introduction to one of his other um, scientific papers, and it was published after his untimely death, W.D. Hamilton's untimely death in 2000, uh, but written in the late 90s. So this is a piece written in the late 90s. Over the years of my working life, W.D. Hamilton wrote, I have been slowly developing a paranoia about hospitals. 
The growth of hospital buildings and all the infrastructure of clinics, pharmacies, the increasing domination of our universities by medical schools, associated with huge hospitals all over the developed world, the unending love affair the public have, or are browbeaten to have, with medicine through the TV screen plays on doctors and on hospital life, accelerant birthing by cesarean section, the indefinite increase of pharmacies even in the third world, the accompanying increase of our everyday pills that tumble from every bathroom cabinet, all these matters combine to tell us how we are heading. Happy in our progress for the present, like children on a fairground roller coaster, prattling of the genetic casties to come. Nope, that says castles, but it looks like casties, which isn't a word. <laughs> I'm going to start that sentence again. Happy in our progress for the present, like children on a fairground roller coaster, prattling of the genetic castles to come. We skim onward, uninformed, into the bowels of a great planetary hospital of the new millennium. My dread is even worse. It concerns how, by the time our joyride ends, we will realize that we have come into the concrete heaven of our TV dreams, but only at basement level. Mm. That's one. You read the second paragraph. Again, from W.D. Hamilton, written in the late 90s. Increasingly electronic upper and admin levels in my hospital would look after us in much the same way as the genome of the eukaryote of the eukaryote maintains a remnant genome, sufficient for the purposes that the overarching nuclear-ruled whole requires, in the form of its one-time bacterial allies now going by names such as mitochondria and chloroplasts. Were the bacteria perhaps lured into the eukaryote cells by chemical temptations analogous to our hospital TV dramas? Were promises held out to them how grand, dramatic, and safe life would be once they are inside? Promises of how wonderful would be the biochemical machines they could play with, and what dizzying and expert communication they would see flying by them on all sides? Were they told how they would be born aloft in moving palaces, humble denizens of soil and slime no longer nor even of merely stationary stromatolites? There in the new palaces they would be fed, advised, and cosseted by the wisest of guides and companions, chromosomes out of nuclei. Wow, all this for free. A millionaire's life on a cruise ship and all for nothing. So the offer to the symbiont may have seemed at first. So he is arguing that the symbiont, which may not have gotten quite the deal it was hoping for, may be seen as analogous to the world we are being offered uh, with the increasing hospitalization. But he further argues, of course, uh, that our hospitals, the promises of the Western medical system, it can't do what it is promising. It's an odd argument because yeah. I agree with him about the hospitals and mm-hmm. all of the things associated with them. I don't agree with him about the symbionts. About um, there being an analogy. Uh, that I think they got a good deal. Yeah. Um, and. Yeah, I, uh, I, I do too. Yeah. So. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I mean, I think it's almost actually, it's so clear that they got a good deal that it's almost a tautology, right? Because the fact is, it's not like their uh, relatives, now their ancestors, did not get to continue on absent the uh, right. So. So let's, partners. Yeah. so let's talk about, um, briefly, because we're, we're going long here, um, what the distinction is, because, uh, you know, because it's, it's not, you know, he, and he doesn't say it is analogous, but he says, you know, maybe, maybe this is like that. Um, so in what way uh, do, do you see uh, the increasing hospitalization? Uh, that, um, that's hospitalization is the wrong word because that's already a word in use, but um, the increasing medicalization yeah. of human health 
as clearly being an offer, as if an offer by a would-be symbiont that is one that we should be uh, denying, refusing. Um, I think my uh, concern about it is that the hospital is part is a, in large part a parasite, and to the extent mm-hmm. it is not a parasite, it is a moron, right? <laughs> because it is not paying sufficient heed to the downsides. It'll give you a pill that may indeed have a positive effect on whatever your condition is, and it will fail to measure all of the downsides that you will experience. In other words, if you measure the effect of this pill on that condition, you may see a uh, reduction in pathogenicity. Mm-hmm. But if you measured all cause mortality, mysteriously, the person might die early, right? And the point right. is, until you get to the all cause mortality measure, you don't know that actually you came out ahead for doing away with your disease. And you don't know about the collateral damage of, for example, prescribing antibiotics and creating superbugs that wouldn't otherwise exist and are much harder to get rid of. And so you solved the problem in the short term and you created a problem in the long term. Right. Well, I mean, what, one of the obvious distinctions uh, to my mind is that uh, before two things were in, were symbionts, were in uh, mandatory symbiotic relationship with one another, they both existed. Right. They, they, they both had the ability to exist and persist. Right. And they may well have, if the, if the symbiotic relationship has itself persisted, um, that that is presumably better for both of them. But uh, when you're talking about humans being medicalized by being sort of ever pushed towards greater medicalization, that thing that is medicalization, that is hospitals, that is pharmaceuticals, that is whatever it is, doesn't exist outside of humans. Mm-hmm. So we are we are being invited, nay forced in many cases, to accept as a potential symbiont, if you will, something which we ourselves created, which cannot exist without us, and which does not have the insight or the complexity to to do our to do our bidding, especially if we imagine that we are subservient to it. Right. Now I would argue another way to put that is that at best a hospital is a necessary evil. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that the route from necessary evil to uh, self-elaborating parasite is a very short road. And especially when you have a profit-driven entity, the point is the perverse incentive incentives make it all but certain that it will make this transition. And the mm-hmm. point is the cost will be to your health, right? right? It doesn't mean that the hospital isn't something you should be tremendously grateful for mm-hmm. at the point that you've been in an accident and you're you know internally bleeding and there's somebody there who knows what to do about it, mm-hmm. right? You should be tremendously grateful. But the point is to have that thing that there is somebody who knows how to save me from my internal hemorrhage uh, transmuted into this gigantic conglomerate that will cause you to make Faustian bargains you don't even know you're making. And which further would have you believe that you unto yourself have no ability to heal yourself. Right. Right. Exactly. And, you know, we talk about this in our book, even simple things like I broke my arm. Am I Mm -hmm. better off? going to my doctor or avoiding my doctor, right? Uh, You know, and at the risk of having the usual things befall us, there is a question about vaccines, right? There's a long schedule of vaccines that we give to very young children who are still involved in development. And the point is, I'm not saying vaccines are bad. In fact, I think they are fantastic in some cases. And in some cases, they are by far our best approach to, to numerous diseases. But that doesn't mean that inherently vaccine is the right tool for every disease. And it doesn't mean that there aren't important costs. And so really the question is, 
is this one justified? Do the cost benefits and unknowns add up to this one being something that I should, uh, you know, accept for my child, for example? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it's a category error. And it's the, the, the intentional, I think, in some cases, abuse of the category uh, to confuse people has worked. It's like, well, Vaccine is an amazing concept, and some vaccines are are brought into the world and are amazing. Therefore, the the arg the implicit part of the argument goes as it squirrels away underground. Um, if you critique any vaccine, you're you're anti-vax, and this is like saying I like dinner because dinner nourishes me. Mm. And now it's nine in the morning, and you say I need some nourishment. You're going to need dinner. Dinner. But it's not, nope, you're going to need dinner because dinner is the thing. Actually, I feel like this is a category problem again. And this is that would be one with you know no ramifications that matter at all. But indeed, it's like saying, um, also, I like dinner. Oh, you're saying all dinner is good. And if you're not saying all dinner is good, therefore you're anti-dinner. You're, anti, you're, you're <laughs> like, an anti-dinner. Actually, I've had bad dinners, yeah. <laughs> and that doesn't mean I don't like dinner. Right, yeah. right. Um, and so it, it is this way with all of it. And yeah. of course, um, if you're going to have a prayer of making the right choices in a landscape in which you have a tremendous number of medical things that you could accept or reject, if you were going to make good choices, A, you would want an uh, an expert working on your behalf. You would want a doctor, and you would want that doctor informed by a system that did not have perverse incentives in it. Yes. And the point is, you know, <laughs> our system is so riddled with perverse incentives that why you think you're getting anything like information in the first place is not clear, right? That's right. It, it, it's it's a it's a system so broken it's guaranteed to fail as it does repeatedly. Indeed. Well, have we arrived? I think we have arrived. I think we've arrived, and um, the sun has come out-ish. Right? Oh, it was out for like yeah. a minute or two there. Yeah, uh, and our our cat here was watching uh, intently out the window. Actually, went Fairfax uh, went to the edge, and I thought I was concerned that maybe he was seeing a coyote out there. It was a bunch of deer. He was watching mm. deer, and he has he was not able to tell how far away they were, and so he had this thought of. Oh, but those taste really good. I'll bet I could catch me one of those. He was having a delusion of grandeur. Yeah, yes, exactly. Nice. Exactly. Um, all right. So we, for those of you uh, who are listening and uh, won't be hearing the Q&A, we will be on next again on Thursday, April 28th. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll be missing next Saturday, but we'll be back middle of the following week. And for those of you who uh, are interested in the Q&A, if I can find it again, we'll be, we'll be back in about 15 minutes on Odyssey, on YouTube. You can uh, ask questions for that Q&A, and we'll get to as many of them as we can in about an hour. Um, we won't get to all of them, but we'll get to many of them at www.darkhorsemissions.com. If you have logistical questions, uh, like, I have a thing I want to send them and it's nice. <laughs> you can you can ask darkhorsemoderator at gmail.com where you might send that. Again, uh, we will be having a private Q&A live stream uh, in eight days, sooner than we'll be back on the, the Dark Horse platform, uh, which you can access by joining my Patreon. And until we see you next, be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. Be well, everyone.